So let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much, God, for bringing us all here tonight. Father, I pray that now as we begin to get into your word, Father, you would be, you would be among us, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would dwell richly in this place, God, that you would empty us of ourselves so that we can hear from you, Lord. We need to hear from you. And if, if you're not the one speaking, then we're all just wasting our time here, Lord. And so I pray that you would speak to us. Pray that you would rid us of all of our pride, our arrogance, our ego, and that we would just humbly listen to what you have to say to us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So please open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be continuing. We're going to continue uh, looking at the portion of the Sermon on the Mount that we, that we started last week. Um, we read Jesus' words when he told his people not to seek personal revenge. You know, don't seek to take an eye for an eye. Don't, don't try to make things even. Uh, rather, if someone strikes you on the cheek, Jesus said, give them the other cheek as well. And, uh, and Jesus' words, according to commentators, they weren't so much a command to be a perpetual victim or to be a, a punching bag uh, all the time. Rather, it was a command to leave vengeance to the Lord. Leave it to the Lord, while at the same time, take the L for the sake of the kingdom. Take that loss for the sake of the kingdom. And that's something that, you know, I don't want to lose sight of. I, I, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that, dude, all of this is for the sake of the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' words on the kingdom that he was bringing. You know, the, the new covenant that he came to make with humanity, a covenant that would be confirmed and made official by the shedding of his own blood on the cross. You know, when we, when we focus so heavily on one or two scriptures, we tend to lose sight of, of the greater context. And I know that's, that's, a, that's a problem. I'm sorry. We don't go through many scriptures each week. It's just there's so much that I want to get to. Um, but the Sermon on the Mount, it begins with the characteristics of those who are in this new kingdom. You know, those who are in this new kingdom, they, they are poor in spirit, meaning that they have no merit on their own. They have no merit on their own to stand before God. Like there's nothing that they have in themselves that they can stand before God with. No merit. They know that they are spiritually bankrupt and in utter need of God's mercy and his grace. Those who belong to the kingdom, they also mourn over their sin and the sin of the world. They have this awareness and ability to mourn over sin because they first came to God in their spiritual poverty. They came recognizing that, and, and then God saved them and made them new, made them like himself. So now they mourn over sin. Those who belong to the kingdom, they're also gentle and meek, not pushovers, but people who know that they have great power, but they restrain that power in the name of being obedient to God. Those who belong to the kingdom, they're also hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They want more of God. Even though they have all of God that they could possibly need, they still want more. They want more and more of God. Those who belong to the kingdom are also merciful. They don't hold grudges. They're not bitter towards those who wrong them. Those who belong to the kingdom are pure in heart. Their affections are not divided. They love God. They follow God. 
and they're obedient to him. Those who belong to the kingdom are also peacemakers. They have made peace with God because God himself made peace with them to begin with, and, and now they are at peace with others. There's no beef with other people. And those who belong to the kingdom, they're persecuted for the name of Jesus. That it, just, it just comes with the territory of following Christ. And they rejoice in this persecution. They rejoice in it because Jesus endured the same things. These are the characteristics of kingdom people. We are carriers of the salt of this new covenant, this salt that has purified and transformed us. And so we share this same purifying and, transform, and transforming salt with others in order to turn dead springs into rivers of living water. The imputed holiness and righteousness that comes from being a kingdom person causes our faces to reflect the light of God, and, and thus we are the, the light of holiness in this dark world. So everything that Jesus says in, in this Sermon on the Mount is describing what this kingdom is to look like, how his people are to interact as kingdom people, new covenant people. And even though this is a new kingdom and a new covenant, we don't nullify the old covenant, the law of God and the prophets. We don't destroy it. Rather, it is fulfilled. It is completed. It is clarified in Christ. In the name of the new kingdom and in the name of the new covenant, we honor our fellow image bearers. We don't murder them in our hearts with our arrogance and anger towards them. In the name of the new covenant, we don't behave sexually immoral by having lustful thoughts toward others. In the name of the new covenant, we don't practice divorce. Marriage is permanent. In the name of the new covenant, we tell the truth. We are consistent in our words and our deeds. In the name of the new covenant, we don't seek personal revenge. We leave room for the vengeance of God. This is all for the new covenant, the new kingdom. This is what it looks like to be salt and light in the world, to represent the kingdom and to reflect the kingdom in order to bring others into the kingdom. And so as we continue looking at these things tonight, if, if you're taking notes, the title of tonight's message is The Second Mile. The Second Mile. So let's read some more verses tonight as, uh, and let's, let's listen to what the Lord has for us tonight. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 40 and 42, this is what it says. As for the one who wants to sue you and, and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So continuing with these verses where Jesus is basically telling us to take an L in his name, now we're getting to the portion where some commentators believe that Jesus is speaking about a situation where you are objectively at fault for something. Someone is suing you for something that you did. You are actually in the wrong in this situation. And when that happens, you are not only to, to give what is required to settle the matter, you are to go above and beyond in settling the matter. And so when you are in the wrong in any matter, in any matter, not just when you're getting sued, you are to do above and beyond what is required to apologize and to express your regret for the wrong that you committed and keep in mind that Jesus, he is saying these words in contrast to what the religious leaders were teaching at this time. If someone is doing something against you, you do something against them in return. This is what they were teaching. 
But here in verse 40, if someone brings legal action against you for something that you did wrong, you do not counter sue to try to get out of the jam. If, if someone brings a charge against you because you said or you did something legitimately wrong, you don't bring up some stuff that they said or did to you to make yourself feel better. That's a tough one. That hurts a little bit because I've done that in the past. I'm guilty of that. But that's not what we do. That's not what we're supposed to do. We are to give more than what is required in order to make up for the offense. Jesus says that if someone wants to sue you for your shirt, give them your coat as well. Now, in these days, the coat was a very valuable piece of clothing. In Deuteronomy 22, verses 26 and 27, it says this, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak or their coat as collateral, return it to him before sunset, for it is his only covering. It is the clothing for his body. What will he sleep in? And if he cries out to me, I will listen because I am gracious. They say that people in this time would generally have one or two undergarment shirts, and they would have one outer coat, one outer garment. This coat or this cloak, it was important. It was very important because it would be a person's blanket while they slept. It was so valuable that the Lord commanded, don't keep a person's coat, even if you're holding it as collateral, like they're gonna owe you money and they're getting their coat back when they pay you back. But if, it, if, if it's, the sun starts to go down and it's nighttime, you give them their coat back because they need that. They absolutely need it. And Jesus is saying, if someone is suing you and coming after your shirt, your, your undergarment that you could do without, since it's, it's thin, he's saying give them also the piece of clothing that is extremely important. Which begs the question, how much should we be willing to give up? How much should we be willing to give up? According to these words, even things that are of the utmost value and significance to us. That's how much we should be willing to give up. If someone takes your undergarment, and then Jesus is saying, we'll also give them your outer garment, what are you left with? Your birthday suit? Yeesh. It's interesting. It's interesting. When it comes to settling the score, we looked at this last week, when it comes to settling the score, when someone does wrong to you, Jesus says, don't get even. You leave that uneven. But when it comes to settling the score, when you do something wrong to someone else, Jesus says, no, you go above and beyond. You go above and beyond to make this right. We are to have this heart when we are making things right with someone. We are to be utterly selfless, utterly selfless. As I said last week, it's a difficult thing to hear. It's a difficult thing to preach knowing who I am. But then Jesus says that if someone forces you to go one mile, go two miles instead. Go two miles. Jesus, he was speaking directly to the culture on this one, directly to the culture. The Romans, they were occupying and ruling over the land of Israel at this time, and it was the law. It was a law that if a Roman soldier came up to you, he could force you to carry his stuff for a mile, for a Roman mile. Nothing you can do about it. This was humiliating. Imagine you're on your way to an appointment or you're on your way to something important and a Roman soldier, he stops you and he forces you to carry his, his pack and his weapons for him while he just takes a leisurely stroll next to you eating some grapes or something or some olives. I don't know what they ate back then, some figs. But, you know, he's just, he's just chilling while you're carrying his stuff. 
It would be so infuriating and insulting. Your time and your obligations are of no value to these Roman soldiers. They didn't have to ask you. They didn't have to to say, hey, if you have some time, they didn't have to ask for your opinion. Do you want to do this? No. The law allowed them to force you to carry their stuff for a Roman mile. And you had to do it or suffer the consequences of going against the world-dominating empire of the time. You had to do it. And as you're being forced to carry these things, as you're being forced to carry this Roman soldier's things, this man, you know, most certainly has zero respect for you. He has no respect for you. The reality of your plight sets in. You really don't have any control over your life at this point. You really are viewed as lowly. And this law of carrying these items for this Roman, for a Roman mile, they highlight all of these facts. And here Jesus is telling the people, he's saying, hey, you know how you, know, you, know how you hate these people who are occupying your land? these people who are humiliating you with this official law of carrying their stuff for them while they enjoy the view, these people who don't respect you and they see you as their enemy, but not even like a formidable enemy, like they just see you as as a pitiful, weak, vile enemy. When these people force you to carry their stuff for a mile, carry it for two. Carry it for two. Jesus, have you lost your mind? That's crazy. In the context of what Jesus is saying in this portion, which is that you are not to take personal vengeance, rather that you should take the L for the sake of the kingdom, he is saying that for the sake of the kingdom, serve these enemies of yours. For the sake of the kingdom, in order to be salt and light, serve these enemies of yours and do for them more than what they are expecting you to do. Last week, uh, I briefly brought up a story about Paul and Silas. If you were here last week, we talked a little bit about Paul and Silas. But this week, I want to take a look at the actual scriptures. So turn your Bibles, please, to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 16. The book of Acts, chapter 16. Now, in, in this portion of Acts, as you guys are turning there, Paul and Silas, they're, they're walking to a prayer meeting. And uh, a girl who had a demon in her, she began to follow them. And it says that for many days, for many days, she was following them around and shouting, these men are slaves of the most high God. Days and days, these men are slaves of the most high God. After days of this, Paul got annoyed and he commanded that demon to come out of that girl. And it came out. That's amazing. The problem though, is that this girl, she was owned by some people who were making a lot of money off of her because she was possessed by a demon who had the power and the ability to predict future events. Side note, just because someone tells you about a future event or just because somebody does something miraculous doesn't necessarily mean that they're from God. You need to look at the totality of the circumstances. When Moses went to Pharaoh with Aaron and Moses uh, uh, or was it Aaron? Aaron put down his staff and the staff turned into a snake. Pharaoh's magicians, they came through and they did the exact same thing. They threw down a staff and it turned into a snake. Just because something amazing and miraculous happens, don't automatically assume, oh, that's from God. You gotta look at the totality of the circumstances. Who is it coming from? How do they feel about the word of God? 
How do they treat the word of God? Are they faithful to, to holiness and righteousness? Don't just take it as like, oh, that's from the Lord. There's a lot of weirdos out there. Bible says test the spirits. Anyway, so this girl's owners, they get upset. They lost their income now that this girl was set free from this demon. So let's start reading as we begin uh, with Acts chapter 16 and verse 19. It says, when her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against them and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. And we'll stop there. So Paul and Silas, who were both Roman citizens, they were both Roman citizens. They were without a proper trial, stripped of their clothes, beaten severely with rods, and then they were thrown into jail without a proper trial, which Romans had a right to. Jesus said that when someone forces you to go one mile, when someone forces you to do something that you don't want to do or forces you to give up some of your rights for the sake of the kingdom, go the second mile. Go further. For the sake of the kingdom, do more than what the enemy is expecting you to do. I would say that Paul and Silas getting stripped, beaten, and jailed, I would say that's the first mile. But let, let, let's, let's read about the second mile that they do. So let's continue reading Acts 16, start in verse 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself because we're all here. Let's pause there. So here is the incredible, the incredible second mile for Paul and Silas. They had an opportunity to escape. They had an opportunity to escape. An earthquake erupts and everyone's chains fall off, but they don't leave the jail. Why? There are many people who could have, and there are many people who would have, said that God himself was the one who caused that earthquake for the purpose of letting his saints go free and escaping from jail. God basically did that exact thing in Acts chapter 5. Peter and the apostles, they were imprisoned by the Sanhedrin, but in the middle of the night, an angel opened up the prison doors, and they were able to escape the prison. In Acts chapter 12, Peter was locked up, and he was to be executed by Herod. He was chained up, and he was lying in between two soldiers, and there were more soldiers standing at the door. An angel helped Peter escape. And essentially, Peter broke out of jail. But we come to Acts 16. Another supernatural event occurs to open up the prison to allow God's people to escape, but they don't. They stay in prison. 
They go the second mile and they remain behind the prison door that was flung wide open with the guard knocked out on the floor. There was no one to stop them. Who was gonna stop them? They could have easily walked out. They were imprisoned unjustly. They were treated unjustly. They should not have been put in that prison. But they went the second mile and they stayed in the prison. Even after the way of escape seemed to have been provided for them. The guard woke up. He saw the prison doors opened. He had no choice but to believe, like, dang, everybody left. There's no way no one left. They all left. And so he was about to take his own life because he had failed in his duty to keep these prisoners in jail. But then Paul shouts that everyone is still in the prison. So let's read what happens next. Acts 16, starting verse 29. It says, the jailer called for lights. He rushed in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. This is why we go the second mile. This is the goal of going the second mile. Salvation came to the house of the jailer, and he rejoiced because he came to believe in God. This man was dead in his sins and his trespasses, and he was heading straight for hell. That was his destination. But then these two Jesus freaks who were imprisoned because they were doing some weird things in the name of God, they were sitting in the prison, and when they had the opportunity to escape, they didn't. Why would they do that? To be salt and light. To be kingdom people. To display the Beatitudes. And because of that, because they did that, salvation came to this man's house. This would not have happened if it were not for Paul and Silas going that second mile. But I want to point out to you guys how they went that second mile. Were they grumbling and complaining as they were doing what they were doing? Were they doing it begrudgingly? Were they causing a huge scene? I know my rights, I know my rights. We're not told whether or not they did those things. We're not. They may have, who knows, but we're not told. But what we are told is that while they were shackled up in the prison, they were praying out loud and they were singing songs of worship to God. While they were suffering unjustly, after they had been stripped and beaten and imprisoned, while they were shackled up among other actual real criminals, they were being examples of how to suffer for the sake of the gospel. They had joy. They had faith. They were faithful to God in the midst of the suffering. And they accomplished much through going this second mile. Not only was this jailer saved eternally with his entire household, 
but it would seem that everyone in that prison was also saved as well. You know, when, when, when Paul stopped the jailer, he said, don't harm yourself because we're all here. That would seem to mean that everyone was still there. How could Paul declare that we're all here if it wasn't true that they were all there? And how is it that everyone stayed when they had the opportunity to leave that prison? How is that possible? Well, there's a strong possibility that the other prisoners were also affected by Paul and Silas going this second mile. By going the second mile, the jailer found salvation and forgiveness. Perhaps all of the other prisoners that were there found salvation and forgiveness. And from the very beginning, from the very beginning of this whole thing, the jailer's life was spared and he didn't have to face God while still dead in his sins. Had Paul and Silas led the charge of leaving the jail like, hey, let's go. The chains are off. The doors are open. The Lord provided an earthquake. And then if they were to lead the charge, there would have been no one there to stop the jailer from stabbing himself with his own sword and taking his own life. And had that happened, as I said, he would have died in his sins and his trespasses, and he would have faced the penalty and the judgment for his sinful life. And it, and it would have started, this, this judgment and this punishment would have started with an eternal life in hell separated from God. But that's not what happened. Paul and Silas, they stayed in the prison. They spared the jailer's life. They led him to the cross where he would find grace and mercy and eternal life. They didn't just go one mile. They went the second mile. Because as I briefly touched on last week, they could have demanded, they could have demanded from the start to be treated fairly as Roman citizens. Before they were even stripped of their clothing, they, they, they could have announced to like, hey, we are Roman citizens. What do you think you're doing? You, you better give us a fair trial before you do anything to us. They could have done that, but they didn't. It's not what they did. They agreed to walk a mile, and then they continued to walk a second mile, and the kingdom of God was furthered as a result. And once the second mile was finished, the kingdom of God was brought to more people that's when Paul begins to demand some justice. After the work was done, that's when he began to demand justice. As I said last week, upon finding out that these men were Roman citizens, the Romans, they tried to release Paul and Silas secretly. But Paul wasn't having it. Nah. Now that the work was done, now that salvation came to some people, Paul demanded that the magistrates, that they come and release Paul and Silas themselves. You come, release us personally. So they came, they apologized to Paul and Silas, and then they urged them to leave town. They, they requested them to leave town. They begged them to leave town. It's quite a different interaction that the Romans were having with Paul and Silas from just the day prior. They went from stripping them and beating them to apologizing to them and requesting that they leave town. The Romans lost their power in this situation. And I'm making it a point 
to highlight these, these contrasting dynamics because the verses that we're looking at in Matthew 5, which for our study tonight, it concludes uh, with, with Jesus saying, give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And someone can take these verses and they can just apply them universally with reckless abandon. And I believe that this is not necessarily what we're supposed to do. Now, hear me. For the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of the gospel, yes, there will be situations where we are to apply these verses to the highest degree. Like Stephen in Acts chapter 7, we looked at last week, turning the other cheek, he took that to the point of death and being murdered for his faith. Paul and Silas in Acts 16, going the second mile, getting stripped, beaten, jailed, and staying in prison, even when it seemed like they had a a way of escape supernaturally provided to them. And for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of the gospel, we are also to give to those who ask us for assistance. And we are not to turn away from the one who wants to borrow from us. We are to have a heart that is ready to provide for the needs of others. It's said that the implication of Jesus' words when he said these things is that the person who was seeking to borrow, the person who was in need, that this person was in an actual and genuine need. Like this person was actually in need, not someone who was just lazy and looking for a handout. And this is why, as, uh, this is why I was presenting you know, the different angles from the Paul and Silas account in Acts. As I've often stated, you got to look at the totality of Scripture to get the best possible interpretation on a particular topic. So we, of course, of course, we are to look out for the poor and for those that are less fortunate. And we are also told in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, it says, if anyone isn't willing to work, what? Can we get that verse up? If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. But then we're also told in Proverbs eleven twenty four, one person gives freely, yet gains more. Another withholds what is right, only to become poor. But then we're also told in 1 Timothy 5, 8, if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. But then we're also told in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, it says the point is this. The person who sows sparingly, sows sparingly, just a little bit, will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And then we're also told in Proverbs eleven fifteen, if someone puts up security for a stranger, like you make yourself responsible for someone's debt, you will suffer for it. But the one who hates such agreements, if you hate to do that, if you hate to make yourself the responsible party for someone's debts, for a stranger's debts, you're protected. There are all these scriptures, all of these scriptures throughout the Bible that talk about giving and providing for others, putting yourself at financial risk for others, not putting yourself at financial risk for others, They all have seemingly different messages, 
but really it's just the wisdom and discernment of God being displayed throughout the scriptures. Wisdom and discernment that we need if we are going to live out this gospel. There have been people who have called the church. I'm telling you, they've, they've called the church and they've asked, they've even demanded that we give them money, that core church gives them money because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Yet we have not given to people because the reason for their need, it wasn't permanent. The reason for their need wasn't permanent. They want money. They wanted money. So they don't have to go out and work for it. That's why they're calling the church, give me money. And they use the excuse that, well, I'm serving the Lord out here. I came out to Los Angeles to serve the Lord. And so I can't get a regular job. Like I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm serving the Lord. And so the church should be providing for me. Paul was a tent maker. In the book of Acts, you read that Paul was a tent maker and he earned a living that way in order not to be a burden to those that he was serving. So we tell these people, okay, well, go make a tent. Go be a tent maker. Go get a job. But we need wisdom and discernment to navigate these situations. I mean, look, you you had Jesus in the Gospels. He would be running away from threats to his life because it wasn't his time yet. You had Paul it seemed to me, maybe he was playing dead when he, got, when he was getting stoned and they took him outside the city. And then when they, were, when they finally left him alone, he's like, all right, cool, got back up and then went right back in there to start preaching the gospel. You know, you had Peter the apostle, he escaped from prison multiple times when he was given the opportunity to escape from prison. The disciples, they ran away from Jerusalem when, when, when the persecution started getting real. And so in order to spare their own lives, in order not to die for the kingdom, they ran away, and they left Jerusalem. Yet you also have people who didn't run, like Stephen. He let his life get taken. Paul and Silas, they went to prison, and they didn't escape when they were given the opportunity. You have the Corinthian church. They gave an offering for the church that was in Jerusalem to help them in their financial need. The early church all, they, they sold all of their possessions and they gave their money to the apostles so that they would be able to provide for the needs of the early church. What's the right thing to do? Run away or stay and die? Assert your rights, take the escape route, or stick around to endure more pain and more punishment? Withhold financial assistance or give to your own financial risk. Our hearts should always be set on what is the best thing for the kingdom. What's the best thing for the kingdom? What does Jesus want you to do? And we should be ready to go as far as he is telling us to go, as far as he is telling us to go. Because at the end of the day, none of these things are truly ours. None of these things are truly ours. Our money, our time, any resources we may have, our own lives, nothing is ours. Nothing belongs to us. It all comes from God and it will return to God. We can't hoard anything that we have. 
We can't hold on to it as if it actually belongs to us. We are merely stewards of these things that we have. And so we need wisdom, and we need discernment, and we need to be utterly obedient to what God is calling us to do. It may mean the difference between life and death for someone who's watching you or someone who needs to hear the the life-giving message of the gospel. We can't be worried about what others will say. You shouldn't give your money to that person. You, You should really stand up for yourself. You shouldn't just take that abuse. Maybe, but maybe not. But we're not to be influenced by others. We are to be influenced by God. Influenced by God and God alone. And he is telling us that we need to be ready to give up everything for the sake of his kingdom. Because that's exactly what he did for us. Did he not? He gave up everything to make forgiveness available to us. And he did it for love. Like John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. Actually, I like the way that it's translated in the, in the Holman, in the Christian Standard Bible. It says, God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but they'll have eternal life. This is what he has done for us. He gave up everything for us. He lived perfectly, but the only reason that he came to live perfectly was to die for us, to be a sacrifice for us. That's why he came. He didn't come to be a good teacher He didn't come to be a moral person and an example for the entire world to to look at and to strive for. No, he came to die for the sins of the world. And so that everyone who would believe in him, through that faith and what he has done and the sacrifice he made on the cross, God could make us born again because we are all born spiritually dead in our sins and our trespasses. We are all, once we are born, destined to die and face judgment and be judged for the sins that we have committed. We have sinned against an eternal God. And so the punishment for that sin is eternal as well. We have no good deeds. We have no merit that can outweigh our bad deeds. Impossible. One bad deed sends you to hell. One sin against God sends you to hell. God is just. He is perfect, but he is also love. And so he sent his one and only son to die for us. He took the punishment. He took all of it. He took the wrath of God that if it would have been given to us, it just means hell. But because he was perfect, he was able to take that wrath, die, but then rise again because his sacrifice was sufficient. It was perfect. And so now, if you would just believe in that message, you can have eternal life. You can be born again. You can have a new heart God will take your heart of stone and he will give you a heart of flesh. What an amazing thing to know. What an amazing thing to have that you can have eternal life. Amen. You can have eternal life. You can have forgiveness. You can have salvation. Not because you're good enough, but because Jesus Christ was good enough on your behalf. That's beautiful. And so as we come to the conclusion of our message, um, I just want to throw out the invitation Uh, there are first-timers here. I don't know who you are, um, but if there's anybody here, even if you've been coming out week after week after week, if there's anybody here, you've come to a place where you realize you're really not trusting in Jesus Christ. You're really not trusting in what he did for you on the cross. You are are actually 
trusting in your own merit. You're relying on you being good enough so that when you stand before God, he's gonna look at you and be like, you're not bad. That's not how God is going to judge us. He expects perfection, but we can't give it, which is why he sent his son. So when you believe in Jesus, he takes away all of your sins and he he gives you his perfection. So if there's anybody in here, you have yet to make that profession of faith or maybe you've backslidden and you need to come back home. I wanna pray for you. I'm not gonna ask you to repeat a prayer. I'm not gonna ask you to come up here. I'm not gonna ask you to do any of that. I just want you to raise your hand so that I can pray for you. So if there, is there anybody here who wants to make that profession of faith for the first time or you've walked away, you've backslidden and you just know it's time to come back home because the Lord is calling you. If that's you, please raise your hand because I wanna pray for you and we, we're, so we can all pray for you. Amir, praise God. What's your name, brother? Jesus, praise the Lord, man. Anybody else? All right, well, let's pray for these guys. Father, I just thank you so much, God, that you are speaking. You've spoken tonight, Lord. You are convicting your people. You want us to come to you, God. And and I just pray for Amir and for Jesus, Lord. God, I pray that this profession of faith that they're making tonight, that it would not just be an emotional thing, but that it would actually be them trusting in what you have done for them on that cross And that it would cause them, if they aren't already, it would cause them to be born again, born from above. And that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit so that from this night forward, they can know that they are saved, that they are in your kingdom because you will begin to change their lives. And God, I pray that you would bring them to a place through this faith where they are going to start seeking you out in your word. They're gonna start reading that Bible gaining more of you, more of an understanding of who you are and that you would change them through that time, Lord. Continue bringing them out to this this church. And God, I pray that you would do an amazing work in their lives in changing them. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now you guys, especially for Amir and Jesus, but for everybody, um, in the New Testament, when people heard the gospel, this message of salvation, you know, they would often ask, what do I need to do? How do okay, what do I do? The jailer, what must I do to be saved? And what, what did the disciples say? They said, well, you need to believe. You need to believe that you even need a savior. You need to believe that you're a sinner. You need to believe that he died for your sins on the cross. You need to believe that he rose again. That's the first part. But then they also said, hey, you need to repent. You need to turn away from your life of sin. Whatever, whatever it is that is causing you to come to this place where you feel like, man, I need Jesus because I'm not living right, whatever that is, you need to repent. You need to turn away from that. And I don't know how many people have told you that in the past, but you need to repent. You're living a lifestyle of sin. You need to stop, turn around, and go the other direction, pursue the Lord. Because now that you're in the kingdom, now that you believe, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Now you have the power to actually do that. Prior to faith in Jesus and regeneration and the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you're a slave to sin. You're just obeying your master. But now that you have come into this faith, professing this faith, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Now you have the power to say no to sin. Now you have the power to repent. So that's what's required. 
And additionally, they would tell the believers that would come to Christ, they would say, okay, well, if you're a brand new believer or even if you've, you've known of Jesus and you had a relationship in the past, but now you're coming back, you're a baby. Now it's time to grow. Now it's time to grow in the Lord. Now it's time to eat. And what that means is now it's time to get into the word. Now it's time to read your Bible. Now it's time to come out consistently to these Bible studies so that you can gain more insight. Second uh, Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. I mean, who, who would like some grace and who would like some peace? Anybody? Like, I'm just asking for a friend. Who would like grace and who would like peace? Well, Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you through what? The knowledge of him. Where is the knowledge of him? It's in that Bible. So now it's time to grow. Now it's time to get into that word, get into that Bible. If you guys don't have a Bible, or if anybody in here doesn't have an actual Bible, I will give you a New Testament. I'm not talking about the phone. Phones don't work. Phones are garbage. It's, it's not the same. You need to interact with paper. I'm, I'm just saying, with paper and ink. So if you don't have a physical Bible, I will give you a New Testament in the meantime while you invest in something quality for yourself. But now it's time to grow. Additionally, the Bible says that believers, they are sheep. What does that mean? Well, now it's time to make yourself a part of a sheepfold. It's time to make yourself a part of a church. If you don't have a home church, Jesus, Amir, or anybody else, if you don't have a home church and you call yourself a believer, let's go. Let's go. Get into a home church. And you're already here. Make this home. <laughs> make this your home. It's time, to, it's time to have a home. It's time to put some roots down. It's time to be a sheep. Make yourself a part of a sheepfold under a shepherd who is under the ultimate shepherd, the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And then they were also told that they are bodies, that they are, they are body parts. They are members of a body, which means you have something to do. My foot helps me walk. My arms help me grab things. You are a body part. You are a body, part of the body of Christ. You have a, a, something you're supposed to be doing. So do it. And like I said last week, if you don't know what that is, if you don't know what your gifting is, if you don't know what your calling is, I can help you try to find it. I'll start you off by cleaning the toilets. I'll start you off by, by, by sweeping the floors. I'll start you off by being a greeter. I'll start you off by doing something, just serving the body of Christ. And as you start serving the body of Christ in these, what you would think are silly and significant things, they're not. But as you do those things, the Lord will begin to reveal to you what your giftings are because you're gonna be hanging out with your brothers and sisters. They're gonna be like, man, I see a gift in you. So you're also a part of the body. You're a body part. You're supposed to be a body part, but if, if you don't have a church, if you don't have a home church, you are detached from the body, you're gonna die. You're amputated right now if you don't have a home. So make this your home. 